The summer of 1857 changed the course of Indian history. For over a century, the East India Company had been expanding its political control and with it its economic control over India. The company used coercion, the company used deception, the company co-opted rulers, the company seemed invincible. But beneath this surface of deceptive calm, there was discontent brewing. Indian soldiers, both Hindus and Muslims, were angry about their terms of service. They were angry about reports that a cartridge they had to use would offend their religious sensibilities. The doctrine of lapse made Indian rulers angry for they could only pass on the throne to a direct descendant. Landlords and peasants were unhappy with extractive taxation arrangements. Social conservatives were unhappy with the quote unquote social reforms that the British tried to introduce. All of this resulted in one of the fiercest challenges that the British had faced through their colonial rule in India. But retribution swiftly followed. There was violence, there was repression. Cities were devastated. Hundreds of thousands were killed. The British eventually succeeded, but London by then had decided that company raj was unsustainable. The crown took over. To discuss the mutiny, its roots, its significance, and how we should remember it in the broader arc of India's freedom struggle, I'm delighted to welcome to this podcast the historian and distinguished writer William Dalrymple. William is has authored many books but among his seminal works is The Last Mughal The Fall of a Dynasty Delhi 1857 Welcome William Prashant thanks very much very nice to have me thank you You know I'd like to take our listeners back to the pre 1857 era explain to us how a british trading company within a century managed to exercise such writ over large parts of india Well it's of course one of the most bizarre stories in history because as you rightly say it was a trading company people in both Britain and India tend to remember that the british conquered india as if it was the british government as if it was the the royal navy the the british army the foreign office downing street all working together bizarrely it wasn't any of those it was a private corporation operating out of one single premises in leadenhall street in the city of london and in the very early days within a, i mean for the first century of the company there were only 35 employees in the head office and in 1756 to 7 the years of the uh, of surajdaula capturing calcutta and then clive coming and and fighting the battle of plassey there were probably only 250 white administrators in india uh, and a handful of british military figures training them and the bizarre and uncomfortable truth about the east india company is that a handful of british merchants and financiers were able to use the fractured state of india remember that when the company is on the rise in the 
early 18th century. It isn't the great Mughal Empire of the, of the previous two centuries with you know, possibly a million men under arms uh, and one unified state encompassing not just most of India, but also Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, all the neighboring states are under the Mughal uh, rule. But by the mid 18th century, that's a thing of the past. Nadir Shah has come and gone. He's taken the treasury. There's no money to pay anyone. There's no money to pay servants. There's no money to pay troops. And on top of the major insurgencies of the first Marathas, but also the Jats and the Sikhs in the Punjab and, and many other groups, the whole sort of enormous edifice of the Mughal Empire has shattered like if you were to take a mirror and throw it out the window and it was to shatter into a million fragments. That's the state of India when the company starts its ascent. It's no longer is it one unified state, it's a million little city-states, Hyderabad, Tanjore, Jodhpur, Jaipur, Udaipur, Delhi, Lucknow, Calcutta, at Murshidabad. And, it, and so it, it is, it's no longer a major undertaking to tear off chunks of it because it's so fractured, it's so disunited. On top of that, the company is aided by the financial classes. And this is, in a sense, the biggest mystery of all. There has been a lot of work done on this now, and it's very clear that the bankers, particularly the Mawaris of the day, uh, and particularly uh, of all of them, the, the Jagat Sets, who were the mega bankers, the Rothschilds of India, based in Murshidabad, but with tentacles over the subcontinent, they simply thought they could make more money out of the company and were more likely to get repaid from their loans on time and with interest. The weird story of the East India Company is that it, it uses Mawari, particularly Mawari capital, to buy the pick of the labor on the military marketplace, which by this stage tends to mean really Rajputs and Brahmins from Bihar and UP. They pay about double what Tipu Sultan pays, so they get the tallest, the strongest, the most capable. And they use an army which is 90% brown Indians, sons of the soil, largely former agricultural laborers, to fight their battles for them. And they have in the 1750s and 60s a major military advantage. There's a new style of warfare, first invented by uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia, which involves muskets and cartridges and bayonets and horse artillery and ballistics and 18th century advances in cannon to defeat the huge cavalry armies that the Mughals had been winning battles with for 200 years. And by using the massive credit facilities granted to them by the bankers and their you know, top of the range military machine, uh, they seize this fractured landscape piece by piece. You know, what you're just telling us is that the political fragmentation of India, the co-option of the local financial and trading elites, and the creation of an armed force, which was led by the company, that allowed them to expand its control. Now, by the time we get to the 1850s, why were different social groups upset with the company, which sparked off the mutiny? Well, I think different social groups have been upset from the company from the beginning and for very good reasons. I mean, there's almost no point when the company is not, you know, breaking the norms of the period, uh, committing atrocities, going around, throwing its weight around, refusing to pay taxes uh, and misbehaving in a rich variety of, of ways. Uh, and so it isn't as if what happens in the 1850s is anything different. What the crucial difference is that this time their own troops are pissed off up to this point. The, the, the sepoys have been you know, paid literally double 
what anyone else is paying them their troops and uh, they're given all sorts of privileges that you know land is available for them when they're when they retire there's, there's a whole uh, enormous structure of privileges that these guys who most of them are, are you know former farmers from um, the back end of UP and Bihar and they become a new elite why were they pissed they were pissed off for a rich variety of reasons now, the, the, one of the first reasons was uh, the aftermath of the major defeat that the company's armies received from the Afghans. Uh, then the company's troops basically left whole uh, whole regiments to, to die in the snow. Uh, many of them were enslaved and a few of them are court-martialed when they return, having you know, made extraordinary escapes from Afghan swords, walking over mountains and they suddenly, you know, they disguise themselves as sadhus, they get back to Hardwar, then they rejoin the regiments only to be arrested and court-martialed. On, on top of all that, there is a, a growing evangelical fervor. I mean, a straight what we today would straight call sort of Christian fundamentalism, growing, um, which emerges out of South London, the, the Clapham sect, as they're known. Um, first of all, takes over the directorship of the company with people like uh, uh, well, Charles Grant is the, is the most famous example of a company director who, who is a fervent evangelical who believes that the company has been allowed to take over. Uh, India by God, so that it convert India to, uh, to Christianity. And they, now, those men are always a minority, but there are enough of them, and they are vocal enough. And they do things like, you know, evangelical colonels reading uh, religious sermons to their Brahmin sepoys on parade when they, you know, they're sadly detention, they can't disobey the order, they're, they're, you know, disciplined military men. But instead, they get, you know, the Beatitudes from the Bible read out to them, or whatever it is. Or collectors putting out the Ten Commandments in Hindi outside their. Uh, collectors. So this sort of new evangelical thing, uh, although it tends to be a fringe element, there's enough of it to make the, make the sepoys believe that there is a, a concerted attempt to uh, convert them. And also there is a connection formed in the 1840s between the missionaries and the company. In the old days, the companies, uh, the missionaries, as far as they existed at all, or were let into the country at all, you know, kept, were on their own on their self-propelled, so to speak. But in the 1840s, there's enough sort of evangelicals in the company for, you know, for example, the Reverend Jennings in Delhi to be given government lodgings in the Red Fort itself, where he, he starts a printing press, producing vile tracts, denouncing Hinduism and denouncing Islam, which are then circulated in, 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 in Urdu and in Hindi out in the town, uh, making wildly sort of vile, blasphemous remarks about both religions as the religion of the devil and, and so on. Uh, and this stirs up a lot of opposition. As ever, there are a rich variety of other reasons that have been there from the beginning. I mean, no one really wants a bunch of foreigners running their country. No one really wants these guys, you know, seizing kingdoms, trampling on rights, building roads through temples, blah, 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 blah. Uh, there's, you know, there's always been, the company is, is a commercial organization. It's there to make a profit. It doesn't even try to, to do the basics of sort of humanitarian uh, when there's a famine, they don't, you know, very certainly in the 1770s, they completely failed to uh, provide a single soup kitchen, while even the famously decadent Nawab Zavavad, you know, build, you know, fantastic uh, ashokanas and so on as famine relief projects. There's nothing like that in the company territory. So they're the kind of worst rulers ever. William, you talked about the role of uh, uh, evangelicals, the perception that there was this out mission to convert people, both Hindus and Muslims, on, the, on a large scale. And in your book, you have talked about the role of religion. I should say that this is you know, the, my view that the 1857 was uh, largely precipitated by religious grievances uh, is, is extremely controversial. 
and it's opposed in a sense by the whole weight of, of the Indian historical establishment's Marxist preconception. And historians of that uh, are very much predisposed to see everything in terms of economic responses. But anyone that spends a day in India knows how religious sentiments can be whipped up and how even among people that aren't particular uh, regular attenders at the temple or the mosque, great outrage could be caused by religious matters. And, and I think this is not a particularly new development. These things come and go, but I, I, I mean, the evidence for the, for the Mutiny Papers, which is the vast stack of archive uh, of the administration of Delhi during 1857, which is then seized by the British and used as the legal evidence in the courts which, which hang and punish the rebels after the British have recaptured the city. Uh, this archive survives in full in the National Archives of India. And this archive very clearly puts the nub of the grievances, as does the um, the issues of the Delhi Urdu Akbar and the Suraj Akbar, which are the two big Delhi newspapers that continue publication throughout 1857. Uh, the, these things are vocalized and, and justified using the rhetoric of religion. Now, there were a million other grievances out there. You know, it, it, how could anyone not be extremely angry that a company in London that operates only for profit, run by a bunch of foreigners with different religion to you and different material culture, who've made very little effort to learn the languages or, or to understand the religions and the culture, are running your country in a way you don't like? I mean, there are, you know, there are a million things to be angry about. But it's very clear in the detail of the mutiny papers that the precipitating grievance uh, is certainly vocalized. The rhetoric of 1857 in Delhi is specifically um, is, is specifically religious. You know, just to go back on religion, were the cartridges greased with beef and pork? So the cartridges are important, I think. Um, I mean, they're only one element in a wider picture, but uh, they are important. So yes, so what happens is that in 1839-42, the company is basically outgunned by the Afghans. The company decides to spend, a, do a massive new investment in a new rifle, and this is, this is a rifle. Rifle means that you've got rifling in the barrel, which means like a sort of corkscrew uh, inside the barrel. This turns the shot in the barrel, uh, and means it goes further and more accurate. The trouble is, it's much more difficult to load when you have a muzzle load, um, when you're pushing the cartridge in from the top, because rather than the smooth barrel, which can, you know, can just ram it down. Uh, with great ease. The, the the same corkscrews that make this ball turn very tightly in the space and make it go more accurately, um, it's much more difficult to get down the barrel. So it has to be lubricated. Now, the company could have used a whole variety of you know, olive oil, nice sort of uh, something for the body shop, Lockitan Provence, you know, there's a whole variety of perfectly nice unguents that would have done the job. But with a lack of sensitivity that's typical of the company by this period, uh, and, and a lack of sensitivity, particularly to religious sentiments, they coat it with with a mixture of pig and cow fat. Now, it seems as if these these cartridges are almost never issued to sea points at any point, but they are issued to white troops. In um, and it also seems that Indian production of, of this Enfield rifle, where the cartridges are made in dum dum, there is some manufacturing fault. And rather than being lightly greased with a little unguent. Uh, these things are coated in, cl in a clug of grease that even the white soldiers don't want to bite because it's like eating a pod of Vaseline or something. It's like having, you know, the idea that the drill is that you bite the top off 
pour it down the barrel. And if it's properly made, it should be perfectly easy. Just, you know, slightly greased bit of paper is not going to um, wreck your day. Uh, but the ones producing dum-dum come out, you know, coated in a great clug of grease, which which is unpleasant to bite. And the complaint of the small numbers of white soldiers to whom these are issued spread through the uh, through the ranks very, very quickly. And, and there's all sorts of harumphings from uh, sepoys who believe that this is the final thing to take away their caste. And, uh, and this does, you know, this is this is there in the literature of time. It, 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 uh, if it's a myth, it's a myth that's widely believed. Why were the princely rulers unhappy? The Rani of Jhansi, of course, became an iconic kind of figure. But but there were others too, right, who, who rose up against the British. So most of India is ruled by princely rulers still. The, the company directly rules less than half modern Indian republic. In 1857, there, there are still huge amounts of territory that are, that are ruled by subsidiary Rajas who have signed some sort of treaty with the company, often have a resident uh, stationed in their capital, uh, but are given day-to-day really free reign to rule as they always have done. And, and there are only certain stipulations of loyalty that they have to follow the company. But, you know, every year, there's slightly fewer of them. One by one, you know, the company is, is, is absorbing their lands. And you mentioned in your introduction the doctrine of lapse, which means that quite large states, such as Avon, suddenly uh, go over to, uh, to to direct rule of the company. And you, you rightly brought up the Rani Jansi, and she's a major, major figure. Again, that's not a myth. One thing that is a myth in 1857, or at least a bit of a myth, is Mangal Pandi. Um, I didn't find the name Mangal Pandi in a single one of the, um, uh, of, the, of the mutiny papers. There's not one direct reference to it. And certainly he existed, he rose up in Calcutta, that's all true. But that this was that this he had become a sort of national figure, in a way that Savarkar uh, maintains in his book the, the Indian War of Independence. He's the first guy to use that. Uh, the first War of Independence is extremely dubious claim, uh, and I, I've seen no evidence for it in, in the material from Delhi, which is the area I follow. I haven't looked at the Lucknow or the Kanpur material or, or, or anywhere else. To be honest, I, I, my speciality is the what's going on within Delhi and its region in 1857. In fact, that's and, I, and literally not a. You do find the British because he has risen up in in Barakpur. You do find the British occasionally describing the mutineers as Bundys. Oh. Uh, but that need not even that need not be a direct reference to him because you know so many of the of the sepoys are Bundys. Uh, it's uh, quite possibly just. So a you would suggest that. that maybe it didn't begin in Barakpur, but in Meerut. No, I, I think Bar- Barakpur did break out, and and he was one of the first. There were many other moments when there are little fires or in- incidents of insurrection around the, the, the lead up to the May outbreak. But what I'm saying is that there's no evidence that I've seen that the company sepoys breaking out in Rajasthan and in Western UP are looking to him and his example or even know about him specifically. As an inspiration. Uh, as an inspiration. In fact, so, that's a hun- way for me to get to Delhi, which is really yeah. your true love affair, right? But Delhi was the site of enormous violence in those years. Bahadur right. Zafar was there. Illustrate for us what was happening in Delhi when these sepoys came and when eventually the British succeeded in repressing them. So, you know, again, contrary to the to the modern narrative that the Mughals are invaders, that uh, who are outsiders, who are foreign to India, who have no roots to the soil, all that recent rhetoric, or if you like, Hindutva rhetoric, goes back to Savak. 
1857, it's very clear that the sepoys want to put the moguls back on the throne. And there's really nothing that Hindutva historians can do to take that away from the facts, because 100,000 sepoys go to Delhi. That's there in all the records. It's unarguable. And, and the British are amazed by this, because the British have, have themselves written off the Mughals. They know very well that the Mughals, for the last uh, 60 years, have been pensioners of the Marathas, then pensioners of the British, and that they haven't really held any power of their own, probably since Muhammad Shah Rangila in the 1730s, which by this stage is 100 and 120 years earlier. Uh, so this is a great surprise to the British, but it's again, it, it remains an uncomfortable fact for... Hindutva historians who, who you know, would, would love these guys to go and join uh, the, the existing Mughal, uh, I mean, sorry, the Hindutva historians who would love these these sepoys to go and join the Maratha forces. But the reality is, most of them don't. Most of them go to Delhi and they, and they urge Bahadur Shah Zafar to lead them. Now, Zafar is in a terrible bind because he's not sure that this, this is at all uh, a, re a rebellion that's going to uh, succeed. Uh, he dislikes violence. He's a Sufi, he's a pacifist. And while in his youth he'd been a rider and a, and a marksman and a keen huntsman, he's now 82 and a, and a you know, very old man. Um, for 82 in, in 1857, Reed maybe you know, 102 today. You know, it, it most he, he's amazing that he's alive at all, and, uh, and he's certainly not at the peak of his mental agility. Uh, and he's horrified by that when he sees you know his friends and administration murdered in front of him in an extremely violent way. Uh, he does recognise this is a possibility of restoring his dynasty, and ultimately he sees he has no chance but to join this. But he's not particularly enthusiastic, partly you know, because these guys are, you know, rural Hindus from 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 the outer edge of his empire. They're not, uh, you know, the local guys from Delhi. And the the same is true of many of many of the Mughal elite. Ghalib, for example, very clearly. Uh, regards these as a bunch of sort of farmers who've turned up and, you know, what are they doing in Guntiwala's, his favourite sweet shop on Chandi Chowk, or, and even more, what are they doing in the cottages of the courtesans who, you know, uh, keep these farmers away. So there's a very mixed response from some of the elite, but there is also an enthusiastic response from other people in the, uh, in the city. And there's no question that in, you know, May the 11th, May the 12th, every white person in Delhi is either killed or driven out of the walls, uh, and every uh, native Christian. And that's the important point, because it's not just that these guys are, are white British, East India Company, uh, all the local Christian community are massacred, starting with Dr. Chiman Lal, uh, who's out, outside his hospital in Darya Ganj, one of the very first sours comes and massacres, uh, massacres him and his family. So it's, uh, it, you know, again, if you, if you strip away the patriotic rhetoric and, the, uh, and, and, and look at the primary sources, uh, it's a confused, bloody affair. There's many different uh, motives in play. There's many different groups that then join the rebellion from initially just being a, a, a mutiny, as, as, the, as the British continue to call it to this day. It soon becomes a popular uprising among some parts of the city. The rebels initially also had territorial successes initially. Why did they fail? What happened? So, as I said, you know, they want Zafar to lead them, but Zafar is 82. And none of his his uh, children, the various princes like Mirza Mughal, are really up to the job either. Um, meanwhile, the 
various military leaders who have arrived self-propelled from different cantonments around the country. Some have come, for example, uh, from uh, Nimach. The Nimach Brigade is one of the most prominent groups uh, who turn up from Nimach and, and camp. They have their own little camps. They come with their own weapons. They come with their own food. And, and they look to their own subadar, who's like a sergeant major. There's no, the company does not promote Indians above uh, subadar rank, which is a fairly junior rank. So several problems with this. A, there's no sort of grand strategic thinking. There's no one in the, in no Indians in the company army that have the rank of brigadier or general who are used to the, the big strategic picture. In the Indian army today, sitting in Fort William in Calcutta or wherever else, and in the big Egyptians, you have very senior generals who had the big strategic picture, who are not doing the uh, the drilling of the troops on the ground, but are thinking of how to take on Pakistan and China and so on. These guys are not there, Native Egyptians. You've just got the highest rank is like a kind of sergeant major who, who drills his troops. And these guys never learn to cooperate really with each other. Uh, so there isn't the feeling of a coherent army that's fighting as brothers together. Uh, these are little disconnected regiments that, that fail to lose their individuality and merge into a, a, a bigger re uh, rebel high command. Secondly, there's, uh, there's not enough money because they're not supported by the bankers. There's an awful lot of stuff in the, in the papers about the, uh, the bankers uh, who are often hauled into the, the, the army camp or to the Red Fort, hung upside down. Uh, and, and tortured or threatened until they yield some money. But, you know, that has never been the way to get money out of Indian bankers. You have to, um, as the British company was very good, you have to offer them good rates of interest. And, and, and that's how uh, you get the cooperation of, of the banking. Uh, so there's very little financing. There's no credit given. So they can't pay their troops. And then they begin to run out of ammunition. And there's attempts to make new ammunition. For example, the, the, the firework makers, you know, the Delhi, the Delhi firework makers are very uh, famous. They make wonderful fireworks in, in uh, uh, Eid and at, uh, at Dussehra and Diwali particularly. Uh, and they're told to sort of you know, provide armaments, but uh, it, it isn't the same. It, you know, it's not military grade uh, 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 gunpowder, although they have raw materials like saltpeter and so on. Uh, and then there's a big explosion in the in the arsenal, and the whole thing goes up. Um, and at the very beginning, the British magazine is blown up by its defenders. So they're running out of ammunition, and they're running out of uh, gunpowder pretty quickly. And then, you know, having in a sense failed to gain the military momentum, disillusion begins to set in. So that having had the you know the the um, momentum and the Feeling that they are the, the you know the, the way forward in the um, in May by August things are getting pretty good. It's also getting horrible in the city. So, you know, water, it's high summer anyway. Delhi's pretty unpleasant even now in uh, in high summer. Um, uh, then the monsoon comes and the smell of dead flesh and you know, the, the British are now on the bridge. They're bombarding the city. So shells flying over uh, every day, which becomes very wearing on on the spirits. And by that sort of time, quite a lot of the sepoys begin to drift off back to their villages. They head off back to Bihar or UP. Uh, there's a harvest. Uh, they, want, they want to get on uh, back to their families and so on. So I think the figures are 100,000 uh, gather by early June, and that number's down to maybe 75 or 60 or 50 even by August. And then the final nail in the, in the, in the Delhi uh, resistance 
uh, an enormous train of artillery of super guns arrived from Ferozpur and the Punjab and are lined up first in Kutsubagh to advance slowly forward towards Kashmiri Gate, uh, smashing up Kashmir, uh, Kashmiri Gate. And finally, on the 18th of September, in the gate. And there's incredible resistance. Uh, the, for the first five days, the Brits, uh, or rather the, the, the company army, um, which is a few Brits and quite a lot of Sikhs, quite a lot of Pashtuns from the frontier, um, make it only as far, as far as St. James's Church. That's the front line, uh, which is, you know, 200, 300 yards into the city. Nowhere else. Uh, they're driven back. They're held. And um, then there is an eclipse. And that, according to the accounts, is the thing. Because even today, uh, if any of you have any very conservative Hindu uh, uh, relations, you know, they will keep their... Um, particularly, I've seen this in Rajasthan. You know, everyone will go into the uh, in, uh, into an inner room, close the curtains during the day of an eclipse. It's, it's considered a day of maximum bad luck. And the fact that this comes, everyone's forgotten you know, the astrology in the middle of all this fighting. But suddenly, this eclipse happens, and it's like saying, "This is over. this is this is your luck." This is men. And when the Brits wake up the following morning, there's no one in the trenches. The boys are stolen away in the night, given up. Zafar sees this and gets in a boat from the Red Fort because in those days the Yamuna isn't a stinking puddle of chemicals, it's a, it's a proper river. Uh, and he gets out of the water gate and he travels with his family's most precious relics, which he dumps in the Zamudin Darga and goes and awaits his fate in, in Hamayan's tomb, sending messages to British intelligence chief William Hodson to come and pick him up. And some sort of deal is being negotiated with uh, his wife. Um, uh, and it was Zilat Mahal, who's much younger. She wants to, she wants her two sons, who are uh, the youngest children, to succeed. And she's trying to stitch up a deal with the British that she still thinks in some way that the dynasty can survive and she can get her two kids on the throne. And so they Hudson comes in, takes them in, and they're not put back in the, in the Duwani Kas, as they expect. They're put into a stables. And from that point, it's downhill until there's a show trial blamed on on the on Muslims and uh, a completely kind of fictional uh, prosecution case that Zafar has led an international Muslim conspiracy stretching to Tehran and, and Mecca and is total bullshit. Why did the crown take over? Sure. Yeah, so when the rebellion is crushed uh, and by 18, 1857, September, October, it's clear that things are falling to bits. Um, Kampur is, is retaken, Delhi is retaken, and Lucknow is the last surviving outpost. As, as the British um, uh, armies and the company armies uh, uh, march forward, often with Scots regiments at the, at the head, um, the, there is massive bloodshed. There is extraordinary violence by the, the company forces. Um, I mean, none of this, I think, is news to anybody in India, but it is not known widely here in Britain, where I'm speaking from at the moment. Uh, there are uh, people uh, made to lick up the blood in the Bibigar in, in Kanpur. Uh, they are sewed in pigskins. They are blown from cannons. And then there is, once they capture Delhi, the gates are sealed after, I think, the 20th of September. And um, any male above the age of 16 found within the city is dead. It is a straightforward murder of any male found within the city. And then... Um, there's very uh, organised rounding up of uh, any of the anyone who is uh, uh, regarded as uh, as participating in the 
So it's a city of the dead by the end. The whole of Delhi is just destroyed. So after that, there is huge pressure on the British state to, to step in. Now, when the company starts in, in, in 1600, it is a sort of libertarian dream. It's a, it's a completely unregulated company that can do more or less what it likes. But after it has gone bust in 1770, uh, after the Bengal famine, which itself precipitated by asset stripping and basically killing the goose that had laid the golden egg, the, the wealth of Bengal. After that, the, the state gets a 50% share and it becomes a public-private partnership. And from that point, 1774, the state control of the East India Company grows. Until in the early 19th century, its monopoly is taken away. So other groups like Jardine Matheson, the, uh, the the opium traders can step in and take a chunk of the opium trading action that many other companies come into. And then its trading facilities are taken away in the 1830s until it becomes just a sort of governing corporation. And many, many voices in Parliament on both sides uh, of, of Parliament are saying, how are we running a company, like how are we running a, our colony in this weird way? Uh, we, this should be a crown possession. Uh, and... Uh, these guys basically that finally get their way after this terrific bloodshed and you know the, the British are not at all anxious about the Indian deaths um, and even a figure like Dickens a man renowned for his humanity is saying delete Delhi after reading the kind of tabloid versions of all this in the British newspapers um, but it is recognized that it is a kind of phenomenal cock-up and, and particularly the British men and women have been killed through mismanagement. For this reason, um, in our modern parlance, the company is nationalized. What was a private corporation owned by shareholders becomes entirely now uh, a, a British government possession. And in 1857, Canning goes to Allahabad Fort, which is the place where uh, the Diwani had originally been signed by Shah Alam, giving the company its first territorial control officially by the Mughal uh, rulers. Uh, in that same place, in Allahabad Fort, uh, the uh, the beginning of the of the Raj is announced, uh, but of course it only lasts ninety years. That's the weird thing that uh, that we think of the Raj as this enormous thing. In fact, the company ruled for two hundred and fifty years, while the Raj only exists for ninety years. So, for most of its uh, its time in India, Britain leased out and privatized its empire to a private corporation run by shareholders and directors. That's a fascinating point. And then, and, and of course, the mutiny then inaugurated a new phase of colonial rule, as you just pointed out, which lasted for nine decades. Thank you so much, William, for sharing your historical knowledge about the mutiny, what what lot led to it and what led to its collapse. With that, uh, we wrap up this episode, but please join us for the next one where we will discuss the founding of the Indian National Congress with Dinyar Patel, the accomplished biographer of Dadabai Naroji. William, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.